0: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? A special bonus edition to mark a historic court ruling. Judgment Day for climate change.
0: Carbon pricing is integral to reducing greenhouse gas emissions and responding to the existential threat of climate change. There should be no debate in this country about whether climate change is real, whether it has an economic cost, Or presents an economic opportunity. We now know
2: that we have a partner in the Supreme Court that they recognize the seriousness, the urgency of the matter and the need for coordination and collaboration across levels of government. We are obviously disappointed with that decision. The Supreme Court ignored the Alberta Court of Appeals warning and discovered a new federal power that erodes provincial jurisdiction and undermines our constitutional federal system.
1: In reverse order, you just heard Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, Green Party leader Anna-May Paul, and Federal Environment and Climate Change Minister Jonathan Wilkinson reacting to today's decision. The ruling at the Supreme Court not only made it clear Ottawa has the power to impose a pollution pricing system on provinces who don't meet set standards. It also confirmed in strong terms the grave nature of the threat facing Canada and the world because of climate change. The ruling was split six, four and three against, but the majority gave the federal government what it is seeking. It's a blow for Alberta, Ontario and Saskatchewan. They all oppose the carbon pricing scheme. We'll tackle the ruling and its implications for the country's efforts to cut emissions and cool a warming planet. Joining us are two people who have been watching the case closely. In fact, one was part of the court hearing that was held last year. Nathalie Chalafour is a professor of law at the University of Ottawa, and she represented two interveners in this case who were arguing for the winning side. Andrew Leach is an economist and an associate professor at the University of Alberta. He led Alberta's climate leadership panel in 2015, researching carbon pricing for former Alberta Premier Rachel Notley. Thank you both for joining us. Nice to be here.
0: Thanks for having us.
1: Natalie, I'll start with you. What's your reaction to today's ruling? Well, I think it's a good ruling. It really makes clear that Parliament
2: has authority to implement a national minimum standard of carbon pricing across the country, which is really critical if we're going to meet our Paris targets.
1: Okay, but what what, what more is there to it? Why did the court uphold the law?
2: Well, what's really good about it is that it recognized that there's diversity across the country but that we need some form of mechanism to make sure that everybody contributes to reducing greenhouse gases and the mechanism the federal government has chosen of course is carbon pricing and this basically ensures there's a floor for carbon pricing emissions across the country so that if one province is doing less or more than another this levels the playing
1: field. Andrew what do you think?
0: I'd agree with that. I think it's uh, it's a landmark decision in environmental policy from the Supreme Court. We haven't really had uh, this type of greenhouse gas emissions policy or greenhouse gas emissions policy at all contested at the Supreme Court. So in in that respect, it's, it's a landmark decision. It also is the first uh, decision in 30 years to expand federal jurisdiction under the peace order and good government power. So that in and of itself makes it both uh, important and also, as uh, you would have heard from from Premier Kenny, uh, something that the provinces are uh, a little wary about. So it, it's certainly going to be one that that echoes for uh, for some time.
1: Yeah, I'm curious to know what you think of, of his initial reaction, and we just heard a bit of it there. But but he's still obviously very disappointed with this.
0: Yeah, and and you know, I found his his reaction both disappointing and surprising. He uh, he reacted by. Uh, citing repeatedly the the Alberta Court of Appeal decision, which was eviscerated to be kind in the Supreme Court's, at least in the majority reasons, and I think there were a lot of parts in his where he doesn't recognize even what his own policies are doing. He stood up and said, You know Alberta's got this great growing renewable energy sector with no help from a carbon tax, which is entirely untrue the the some of the facilities are being built today were funded under the carbon tax brought in by Rachel Notley. And Premier Kenny's own carbon tax has a provision that allocates free emissions credits to renewable generators that they can then sell for revenue. So even the plants that are being commissioned or or proposed today are being enabled by his own carbon price. And he just won't acknowledge that.
1: Natalie, let me go to you. Can you remind us briefly exactly what this legislation does?
2: So, it essentially enacts a national carbon price in two parts. And basically, it's designed as a backstop. So, it says that there's going to be a levy essentially on fuels across the country that produce greenhouse gas emissions at a certain level that's going to rise incrementally over a period of years. And there's also a second part that deals with industrial emitters, large industrial emitters that are perhaps more have more competitiveness impacts or more trade exposed. And together that establishes like a national price that's going to increase over time across the country. But it's designed in a way that's what we call a backstop. So it lets each province implement its own carbon price. And if it meets the standards, that's it. But if it doesn't meet the standard, then the federal government can come in and implement its own system. even though the revenues will always go back to the jurisdiction. But what, what, what's
1: the, what is the goal of it, though? Is it meant to change people's behavior?
2: It's exactly that. So it's it's meant to essentially shift investments away from carbon-intensive goods and services and get people to make decisions that are going to be less carbon-intensive. So over time, that kind of a price sends a signal to the economy, and it changes behavior. So people will shift over time to less carbon intensive decisions.
1: Now there's some strong language in the ruling from the majority. For example, here's a quote, the undisputed existence of a threat to the future of humanity cannot be ignored. Um, I'm wondering what kind of impact that language has. Andrew? Well,
0: I think it, it takes on some special significance after the, the conservative convention last week and and we're now apparently debating again whether climate change is real. but. It's important to remember that none of that was at issue before the court. So the court wasn't really ruling on, you know, is this a serious enough problem for the federal government to get involved? They weren't arguing that this was an emergency measure. They weren't arguing that this was uh that that this was something that needed to be done right now because of the urgency of the problem they were arguing and the court agreed that this had an inherently federal aspect to it, that there was a reason the federal government needed to act. So, you know, I think it's important from a climate change perspective that you have those statements on the record, but that wasn't at all the crux of the, the question at hand. And a, and a lot of these cases, as um, as Natalie will, will certainly affirm, I mean, some of the major constitutional law cases are really, really small things, little policies, little regulatory applications that become very, very important. This has the unique attribute, probably unique, at least since the inflation legislation in the 70s of being both a massive scale national policy and a really institution, uh, uh, important constitutional question.
1: Right, uh, but you kind of anticipate my next question, which is for either one of you. D- does, does the ruling, in the way it's worded, give the federal government license to charge ahead with other poli- policies and initiatives with regard to climate change, regardless of what the provinces say? Natalie?
2: So, not really. The the ruling's pretty careful. And it's careful because, as you probably know, the federal government has a a basket of powers. So, they have taxation powers, they have powers over fisheries, they have a a whole variety of powers. They chose to design and try to justify this legislation under what we call POG, Peace, Order, and Good Government. And the national concern part of POG, that's a power that has been interpreted traditionally quite narrowly because of the possibility that it could skew federal provincial balance of powers. So in this case, they did uphold it under this POG power, but the majority, even though it's a very strong ruling, was quite careful to say that does not open up uh, federal powers to be able to legislate on anything that has a national dimension to it. What they pointed to, and I think this was quite striking in the ruling, they pointed to evidence of um, differences in provincial emissions that cause the federal government and the national um, government not to be able to meet its international targets or its national targets. So the unevenness is really what motivated the court in this case to, the words they used was to address the mischief, essentially, that can cause, and again quoting the court, profound nationwide harm associated with leaving this entirely to the provinces.
1: Andrew, we we saw Jonathan Wilkinson, uh, the federal climate minister, right out of the gate claiming victory on this and and obviously satisfied and happy with what this means for the federal uh, legislative agenda on climate change. What do you think? Do do you expect Ottawa to, to take more actions similar to this?
0: Well, I think this this really affirms their framework. And I think their approach from the beginning, which was, despite many of the objections, was actually pretty light touch from the federal government to say, effectively, we're going to delegate to the provinces uh, and we're only going to step in in a case where there's a real shortfall of, of provincial legislation. So we're going to keep that provincial innovation alive, different policy approaches and such. So I think, you know, we're not... Uh, We're not likely to see that get abandoned, but of course there are other things the federal government has done and continues to do. Regulations on coal-fired power, for example, those are what we think of as criminal law from the federal perspective. Um, They're also doing a lot with their spending power. We're talking about whether they're gonna subsidize carbon capture and storage or new nuclear reactors, or renewable power, home retrofits. And that's all, again, not at issue in this ruling, but I'd expect to see many of those things continue from the federal government. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, Plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know.
2: Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer... What's better, cotton or polyester, tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Well, let's talk about what it means for the provinces then, the the ones who who fought against it. What changes do you expect to see in those provinces?
0: Um, Well, I think from the provincial perspective, we've already seen some of it, right? So Alberta, Saskatchewan and Ontario have each created their own carbon pricing policies for their large emitters. And I think what you'll see is some push or at least some consideration of, do they want to repatriate pricing carbon to a provincial policy? I personally don't think you'll see that and, and Jason Kenney's comments today, I think echoed that. I think he's happier with uh, the ability to blame Justin Trudeau for the carbon tax than he is to stand up and say, well, fine, I'm giving in and I'm gonna have my own carbon tax here in uh, here in the province of Alberta. But I guess we'll see. And, and the same thing will be true in in the other provinces. They'll have to weigh whether or not they want to to have their own policy with their own uh, with their own exemptions. And and of course, you know, I think you'll continue to see Premier Kenney and, and Premier Ford uh, in particular push harder and harder to attempt to position the federal conservatives for a win in the next election so that all of this become, gets reset.
1: We've been talking politics, now let's talk pocketbook. <laughs> so this is good news for the people who, who um, are leading the fight against climate change. Natalie, I'm wondering though, what imp- impact will it have on individuals and, and and their pocketbooks?
2: Well, that's a great question. And it tends to be the sort of gut instinct when we talk about carbon pricing. And you know what's so important to keep in mind is two things. One is that the way that this measure is designed now the revenues from the carbon price, which are not inconsiderable, they are all going back um, to the province from which those, uh, you know, the revenues are sourced. So they're going back in rebates to taxpayers, and then also in fundings and programs. So I think it's up to eighty percent of people who are um, experiencing. Well, if, up to eighty percent of people will get more back in terms of those rebates, and they will pay out of pocket. So that's a pretty significant, um, you know, fact to remind people of. Most people are going to be better off, in fact, when you take into account the rebate. But even more importantly, when we have these discussions, we almost never take into account what we call the social cost of carbon or the fact that climate change is already costing us a lot, and it's going to continue to do so. So whether you're thinking of wildfires or floods or you know, slower onset, but equally devastating impacts like permafrost melting or glaciers melting and sea level rise. All of those things have economic ramifications that are very significant. So when Canadians are resisting, you know, what what will translate to be, you know, a a certain amount of cents increase on their gasoline purchases and some increases, they have to also compare that to what um, what would happen without it and those increasing
1: costs of climate change. Andrew, do you want to weigh in on
0: that? I, I think that's a, that's a great answer. We, we do need to remember that, you know, within all of those, uh, the 20% of consumers who are made worse off, we still do want to, to pay attention to that, to make sure that uh, we're doing as much as we can to make sure that that's not individuals in our lowest income brackets. In, in, in my view, that's a really important aspect that we want to keep our eye on and the other piece that that i think is important in this policy is it also gives the federal government the tools to protect large emitters or trade exposed industry from uh, the competitiveness effects of carbon pricing so it gives the federal government not just the carbon pricing tool but allows them to effectively rebate or or incentivize some of these industries with some free emissions credits to make sure that they're not at a an overall disadvantage to industries in other parts of the world that might not face the same carbon pricing. So one of the worries I had going in was that that particular part of the legislation would be potentially more at risk than the overall package. And I'm glad that it remains because it gives the federal government an an important means to make sure we don't have uh, industrial disruption coming from carbon pricing.
1: And I just want to stay with you on on that question of of the, the economy jobs. Minister Wilkinson said today that this ruling opens up the door to innovation and jobs. Do you think that that is true? I mean, how might this create jobs and drive innovation?
0: Well, I think we know that the carbon pricing drives innovation because it basically puts a market value on reducing emissions. So it says if you come up with a technology that lets a company uh, reduce their emissions, there's a, a clear dollar value to that that's established by the federal carbon price. So that's the driving of innov- innovation side of things. Uh, the creation of jobs, I think if you, if you pin down the minister on that, he's going to say that You know, some of the industries that will be advantaged by uh, low carbon investments tend to be more labor intensive than industries that are disadvantaged by the sort of green jobs line. But that certainly wouldn't be my first, second or third line of of defense for this policy.
1: All right. And Natalie, Minister Wilkinson also described the ruling as especially important to young people. I'm, I'm wondering what you think of that. Well, I think
2: that's a really important point because one of the arguments that I brought forward on behalf of the interveners that I represented was that climate change, while it's going to impact everybody, it does have disproportionate impacts on particular uh, groups of people, including youth, simply by virtue of the fact that they're going to, on average, live longer and deal with the devastating impacts of climate change. And also on certain groups like Indigenous peoples, which are actually mentioned in the judgment, um, and other groups that already face you know, systemic discrimination and equality. So it's really important to keep that in mind and to make sure that as we move forward, these policies are designed with that in mind.
1: Okay, final thoughts from both of you. Uh, where do you think this goes next? Natalie, start with you.
2: Well, I think finally, I hope this will put an end to what has been a lot of, you know, partisan bickering over this particular policy. I think everybody agrees there's so much work to be done on climate change. And there's, you know, as much as there's a lot of risk, and there's fear and everything else, there's also opportunity to get ahead of the game to do this right, and to deal with some of these, you know, distributional risks that I just mentioned. So hopefully, this will refocus some of the debate. I don't expect all of the, uh, of course, the disagreement to disappear, but uh, perhaps at least this
1: part of the debate will be put to rest, and we can move on. Andrew, final word to you.
0: I, I think you know we'd be wrong to think this is the last word from from the courts on this, and it's probably not going to be our last climate change policy. And so, I think we'll we'll be having these discussions for years and years to come. But uh, as Natalie said, this this is a really important marker to put down to say the federal government has a role to play. And I think it's still gonna be years before we have really clear delineation of those roles and, and what the provinces do in response.
1: Natalie, Andrew, thank you for your near instant analysis of today's ruling.
2: You're very welcome.
0: Thanks for having us.
1: Nathalie Chalafour is a professor of law at the University of Ottawa. She represented two interveners in this case who were arguing for the winning side. Andrew Leach is an economist and an associate professor at the University of Alberta. We would love to hear from you about the decision. Email us earth at cbc.ca is the email address. And if you haven't heard this podcast before, give us a review. It would mean a lot to the team. And the team is associate producers Rachel Sanders and Jennifer Van Evra. Producers Molly Siegel and Lisa Johnson, Matthias Wolfson is our engineer, Monisha Janakaram is our senior producer, our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.
0: For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.